thank you all for taking time to be here. Um, the why do we do that class has been super fun for me um, because it, it isn't so structured in terms of, okay, here's what you need to know about Rosh Hashanah. Here's what you need to, and then like covering this and covering that and the theology and the liturgy and the what am I going to go. So what's been really fun for me is just kind of like, what have I been asked over the years that people, no matter how long they've been Jewish or around Jews, like know something about, but kind of want to know a little bit more about, right? Or just kind of like, okay, yeah, we knew that, but that's one person's take. What's what's her take? Or what's KI's take? Or what's Reconstructionist's take? Or what's Liberal Judaism's take? So this has been really fun for me um, to uh, prepare. Uh, and so what, what really motivates me about this is answering questions uh, about why do we do that? Because um, that's super, super fun. So... Um, so I have some things prepared based on the questions I've been asked over the years, again, by Jews who have been Jewish their whole lives, seriously Jewishly involved, know that we make the meatloaf this wide and cut off the ends and don't know why, right? And of course, as you said earlier, um, Susan, because that's how the great, great, great grandmother did it because she only had a pan that was this big. Like, so that whole idea is like, why do we do it? Kaha, because that's how it is. Like, that's how we do it. Um, and so it's been really fun to, to hear over the years Jews asking me, why do we do that, even though they've been doing it their whole lives? Then there are folks who haven't been exposed to these customs who are like, why do we do that? Right? Like, um, like, cause I should know, or I'm embarrassed to ask, or it's a secret, or, right, d when do I get to know why we do that? Um, so, so, so I really want your why do we do that questions, but I'll start us off and um, kind of get us going with the questions I've been asked over the years by people who have been Jewish, even for a super long time. All right, so the, one of the first questions um, that a lot of people have who are, and I'll, I'll start, that it's usually people who are not Jewish ask, why a shofar on Rosh Hashanah? Like, why a shofar? Um, and, um, and, and it's actually something that Jews assume that there's one answer to often, right? And so what's the most common answer you've heard to that question of why a shofar? That's what used to bring the people together, used to gather people together in ancient Israel, was like one of the ways that we gathered people together. It's one of the oldest wind instruments known to humankind, um, is an animal horn that has been... Uh, Roto-rooted, or whatever you call it. What's the technical term? Hollowed out. Hollowed out. Um, no, but there's a word for like what you do. It's re. Thank you. It's been reamed uh, out. Uh, so that uh, that that is one of the oldest. This is one of the oldest wind instruments in the world. So it was definitely used in ancient Israel to call people together, um, and so it was the thing that could make sound travel really far. So if you think about how people lived in the ancient world, you needed sound to carry really far to get everybody to hear it. Um, what else do we associate with the uh, shofar, the ram's horn? So the sounds. So immediately you think when you see shofar or hear about shofar, you think immediately, Dana, the sounds of the shofar. Okay, so we do have attested in Torah, Truah, and Tekiah. We have those in Torah. So anybody who's been studying Torah knows Tekiah and Truah are in Torah. What else? When I say Ram and Rosh Hashanah, ah, thank you, the near sacrifice of Isaac. 
the binding of Isaac, the willingness of Abraham to bind Isaac on the altar, because he was told to offer his son as a sacrifice, um, or so he imagined, some of us like to say, but whatever. Um, and he is willing to do so. And then why and what? So the angel comes and says, uh-uh, Abraham, Abraham. The angel had to say his name twice, right? Sometimes when we're caught up in the passion of something, we don't hear so well. Uh, someone calling us to something else. Abraham, Abraham, don't hurt the boy. Do not touch, you know, essentially one hair on his head. And so what does uh, Abraham offer instead on the altar? The ram. So the shofar from the beginning of our tradition Which one is calls it? to mind Abraham and his willingness to sacrifice his son. Um, and so some of us see, traditionally that has been seen as an act of great faith and an act of love for God. Lots of us are troubled by that text and say Abraham got it completely wrong and he failed the test and God had to show Abraham that you failed. So take, a, oh, sorry, take a ram, you know, sacrifice something else, never sacrifice your children. Never. And of course, for us, the important teaching is not only literally, but don't ever sacrifice your children for something else that you think is more important. And I'm not talking about competing values. I'm talking about at the cost of your child's sense of who they are, never be willing to sacrifice that for your own parental agenda, right? I'm not talking about the competition between work and and raising children or none of that. I'm talking about never sacrifice who your child is for your own vision of who they should be. Right. So that's a good question. It's a really good question because in Hebrew, of course, there is no word for sacrifice. The word is korban to draw close. And what we're drawing close to, of course, is the divine. So korban, when we offer an animal on the altar, we are drawing close to the divine and inviting the, inviting the divine in for a meal that because God eats some of it and we eat some of it is traditionally how it's like way long ago was understood. So it's a really good question. In what ways do we think we're drawing the divine close and sacrifice our children to do that when in fact, that's not what's wanted. God doesn't want that. Don't try to draw close to me by asking your children to be something they're not. Don't say if you marry that person, you're cut out of my life, I'll sit cottage for you. Because you think that draws you closer to God. All you've done is sacrifice your child. And we got taught, you don't sacrifice your child. You sacrifice something else. So uh, so the Isaac, so we get that whole story. So um, that is one of the ways that we uh, come to uh, the meaning of the shofar. That's why we read that text on Rosh Hashanah. We come to it through uh, the sound that called us together. What else it called us together in ancient times, in ancient Israel? What else in ancient Israel did it call us to do? Called us to their own, there was no prayer in ancient Israel. So, but I think about when I'm in Jerusalem now, I think about the, the call that comes out of the speakers everywhere when it's time for Muslims to pray. I totally hear that when I hear the shofar. Time to gather for prayer. 100% I hear that. But in ancient Israel, they didn't pray like at a set time. To start something, often war. It was a call to war. 
it was it, like wars happening, battle, battles happening. So, uh, like, hello, like alarm. Um, and the other one is, um, that it was also, uh, so it was used for alarm, for war. Uh, uh it was also used to break camp. In Torah, it was used when the Israelites were going to break camp. They sounded shofar, and it was time to break camp and then move forward. Uh, and then they settled down again, and it was time to break camp again. You blew shofar. Yes, yes, it was an alarm clock. That's exactly what it was. All right, so looking at all those examples, so the shofar then symbolizes for us, when we think about um, Avraham, it's like, okay, so what are the ways I am called this year to make sure I'm not sacrificing anybody, right, that I love, not just my children, anyone I love for some something I think is an ideal, something I think is going to draw me closer to God, but that's not the sacrifice. That's not the karov. That's Because, again, there's no word for sacrifice in Hebrew. It's korban, drawing close. How do I actually draw close to the divine, and what do I think I need to sacrifice that's the wrong answer? Sometimes it's ourself. Our sanity, right? Because I'm going to serve a higher ideal. And so therefore I'm going to, you know, work so hard and be so busy and serve everyone else. And that's going to draw me close to my ideals and to God and godliness, you know, holiness. When actually it's like, mm, 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 mm. no human being is supposed to be sacrificed, including ourselves. So I feel like that every year. It's like, okay, where, where is it out of line in terms of what I'm sacrificing, thinking, like offering up thinking? It's helping, and it's really, really not. Um, as we said, it was an alarm. So Rosh Hashanah is the way to say, okay, we're kind of sleepwalking through life a lot of times, sitting at the edge of the Grand Canyon with a paper bag on our heads. Like, wh- where am I being called to wake up? Like, literally, alarm. Like, pay attention. If it's called, if it's about breaking camp, what do you do when you break camp? You're, you're in a break camp. You don't just sit there with your camp broken down. What are you doing? Walking. You're building a new one. You're moving. You're walking. You're going. And so for me, sometimes that's really what I need is a call out of my complacency. So both an alarm, but the alarm goes off. You could stay in bed, right? So first of all, you have to wake up, right? So first of all, it's an alarm. Second of all, though, once the alarm goes off, you have to get out and like put your feet on the floor and deal with the ants. I don't know about y'all, but get up, put your feet on the floor where all the ants are right now coming in from every corner of the house. So Marty Mock was asking um, if it was a call to war, were there calls of the shofar during war to signal different actions like retreat, advance, reverie, like were, were there different ways that it was used in war? And what my answer was, we, well, you heard my answer. Um, cause I might, um, so we don't, we don't know. Um, okay. So, so I'm trying to correlate like where it originates to what it means like for us today, you know, how, how does that like call to us spiritually? So, um, the other thing, um, is it when we break camp and then we move forward, it's like, for me, that's sometimes the call of Rosh Hashanah. All right. What do you need to break down? I know it's awful. <laughs> I know you hate it, but what do you need to break down? And it's the call saying, okay, you break it down, and then you know what? You move on. You move forward with confidence, with trust, with everybody else doing the same thing at the same time. Right? 
everybody's doing the same thing at the same time. They're all breaking down. They're all moving. They're moving as a team. They're moving as a community. They're moving as a people. And then you set up camp, hopefully like a little bit ahead of where you were. Turns out they were going in circles for 40 years, but we're not going to talk about that. Um, so for me, that's often the call of Rosh Hashanah is, um, I'm a little sleepwalking like the rest of us, a little sleepy, a little tired, a little complacent, a lot complacent. Um, and it's the alarm that wakes us up. And then it's like, okay, and it's time to get moving. Like what, what's, what's next? What's calling me forward? Okay. The, the Kabbalah, the Kabbalistic tradition understands, uh, a little bit, uh, more than all of those. And it says the only way this makes a sound is how. Like you're just sitting here, it's not going to make a sound. How does it make a sound? By blowing into it, by pushing my breath, my ruach, my wind, my air, my breath through it. That's the only way it sounds. Well, guess what? <laughs> that is exactly how the divine, according to our tradition, uh, has the human animated is God blows God's ruach, God's spirit, breath, wind, whatever word you want to use. They're all the same in Hebrew, ruach blows it into the human being, and that's what animates us. We are breathing in the breath of dinosaurs, and every time we breathe out, often um, the only way our mouths make a sound is we, we breathe often, like we breathe all the time. But the only way our mouths can make a sound is when our breath moves through, the way we put our tongue, our teeth, and our lips, and that we need to be very careful about that. We need to be very careful. So it's a it's a reminder that when the air moves through an instrument, it makes a sound and it delivers a message. What's the message? Alarm, calling us together, calling us to break camp, calling us to prayer, calling us, what? And we need to be very aware that the sound moving through our apparatus has a message and it makes a difference out there and it resonates, right? Literally. <laughs> so be careful how you use your breath when it's going to make a sound, which is speech for us. So the other thing the rabbis teach, um, it's both the glory, and I kind of underplayed the glory of that according to the Kabbalistic tradition. That's a beautiful thing, that God breathes God's spirit and wind and breath into us. We breathe, but the rabbis say we are breathed by the universe because we don't do it, the brain scientist will tell us, we don't consciously think about it. If we had to, most of us would die. Like if I had to think about breathing, forget about it. I would have died at age three so or before. So um, part of the beauty that the Kabbalistic tradition understands is that we don't breathe. We are breathed by the universe. We are sustained in every breath we take by the universe that breathes us. Nishama is breath, uh, sorry, nishama is soul in Hebrew, nishima is breath. They are absolutely related. This idea of our soul, our essence, our animation, That and if you've seen a corpse, you know from a moment to a moment what, what animates is gone when you look at a corpse. It's gone, like that, it's gone. It was there a second ago, and now it's not, the animating force. So um, for the Kabbalists, that's a beautiful thing that we tend to take for granted and forget that we are breathed all the time, we're still here, here's our next breath, let's be careful about how we use it, particularly when it comes to the thing that makes sound, that makes speech. And the final teaching of the, well, not final, but one of my favorite finals is, um, which end do you blow in to make the sound? 
<laughs> the little end. The little end. If you really want to make a sound and you really want it to have any kind of good impact about calling us together, calling us to prayer, call, then you don't blow in the big end. You blow in the really little end. That's where the sound uh, happens. Okay. So that's a little bit about why shofar. Um, and so then the other question is that, that I've gotten asked is, okay, well, where did these sounds come from and why so many? Like, can you just sound it? Like, why don't we just, like in war, like, blow it. Like, okay, we woke up. It's an alarm. We're, we got it. Break camp. Time to move into a new year. Blah, blah, blah. What is with all the business about Takiya, Teruah, Shivarim, Shivarim, Teruah, la, 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 la. Like, what is all that? And so um, what we know about Rosh Hashanah from the Bible is Rosh Hashanah is Yom Truah, the day of Truah. It happens in the seventh month. All right. So already, like you might be a little bit like, wait, what? The seventh month? What happened to the new year? It wasn't the new year. It was Yom Truah. It was the, the day of blowing Truah, the seventh month. The first day of the seventh month, the new moon, you blew shofar with a truah. So Yom Truah, the day of Truah. That's all we know from the Bible. That's, that's what it is. First day, the seventh month, Yom Truah. You have a Yom of Truah, and that's it. That's all we have. Okay. So obviously, the calendar changed, and it became the first month of the Jewish year. Okay. Look, we can have that conversation if we want to at some point. People who learn Torah with me probably know that. All right, so fine. So we have Yom Truah. So but then we have in Torah, we have the understanding that there was Tikiah. And so when they were going to break camp um, or when they were going to war, there was, or I think it may be only about breaking camp, there was a Tikiah, then a Teruah, then a Tikiah. So a short blast a longer blast and a short blast. That's all we know. Tekia, Terua, Tekia. So there's a Tekia on each side of the Terua that signaled breaking camp. There's lots of beautiful spiritual teachings about what that means to, to have something on either side of when it breaks down, right? We take both what happened and what's going to happen. And that book ends like the breaking down. It's a beautiful teaching. But so what exactly is a Terua? Well, we, we don't know what that sound sounds like. So possibly they knew what Takiya sounded like. Possibly not. But, but we don't know, like when you say this, and it was a sound of wailing, like of, of weeping. So what sound does one make when one weeps? So if you're trying to put that together, you have no recordings. All you have are texts that refer to the sound of weeping. So how do we cry? Right? So there's Emelinda. Oh, I, I'm, I want to hear this. Okay. Emelinda, unmute and tell us. Tell me some sounds of crying. Oh, yeah. You're on the spot now, girl. Thank you. Uh, that uh, that short gasps and then wail. Yes. Been spending a lot of time with a six-year-old having a hard time being alive right now. It's that. Uh, oh, right. So lovely. That was a beautiful demonstration. Thank you. So there's kind of the. There's a, <laughs> right, so that kind of staccato, and then there's a, ah, right, right, so that kind of long blast, 
Um, and then there's a, <laughs> right? So nobody knows exactly which one of those it meant, which one was indicated. So they decide the rabbis in their, in their glory, exactly, Richard, put them together. When in doubt, Jewishly do them all. These like savory, these like sweet, this one eats, you know, pot roast, this one eats lamb, do them all. Then everybody's happy, right? So that's the easiest solution. So that's exactly what they did. So, so what, so to Ellen Linda's point, exactly right. So, uh, the, uh, teruah, no, the, sorry, the tekiah is the, uh, kind of a straightforward, uh, whale, right? In the ancient world, women were paid to be, uh, professional mourners. And what did they do if they were professional mourners? Do you know what that technical term is? They would ululate. Like that, that sound. So goes to Emma Linda's, <laughs> right? That, that very broken staccato cry um, associated with women in the ancient world ululating. Like that kind of very broken. I know I'm hurting people's ears. It's fine. Um. Uh, I just want to say that, that ululating, I mean, you know, folk dancing when they're like having fun. Yes. Especially, you know, these, I mean, it's like, whoa. But also doesn't laughter and weeping sound the same often? <laughs> but I, I mean, it felt so, it feels so cultural. In terms of like, yeah, well, when we go, oh my God, right? That that's a lot. That's intense. Right. Right, so that I can't do how they actually do it when they ululate. I shut up, Rebecca. All right, so um, so when if you don't know what of those it is, the rabbis decide. Well, let's do all of them, right? So we have the tekiah, uh, the straightforward whale. We have teruah <laughs> or ululating, right? And then shavarim. <laughs> I don't know about y'all, but that's that's like when I really have been crying a lot, you get to the point where you're not you're just so cried out, but it's like <laughs> that broke. So that is Shivarim. So we have all of them. So we have Takiya, we have Terua, we have Shivarim. So when the rabbis decided, well, then what should you do? Well, if in total we have a tekiah, teruah, tekiah, but we don't know exactly what teruah sounds like, so maybe it sounds like shavarim, then you want to do a tekiah, teruah, tekiah, tekiah, shavarim, teruah, right? Tekiah, shavarim, teruah. Well, what if what they meant by teruah was kind of a combination? Like it's not in isolation. So maybe it was... Shivarim Teruah. Well, we better include that one too. So Tekia, Shivarim Teruah, Tekia. So when you add those together, you get a bunch of blasts, right? You get about 30 because um, it has to be repeated. Um, so you get about 30. Anyone know how many times we blow, how many shofar sounds we make on Rosh Hashanah? Total? Very close. A hundred. A hundred. We have a hundred blasts of the shofar in a traditional service, not a KI. But in a traditional service, you have a hundred blasts of the shofar. 
some people want to give it significance, like more likely it wound up being a hundred because of this is 30. Then in the Musaf service at the Amidah, you, the standing prayer, you have, uh, the soundings of these that are Shofrot, Zichronot, and Malchuyot. So Shofrot section of the Amidah in Musaf with these blasts. Then you have the Zichronot remembrance section. And then you have the, the kingship section. So that adds 90, uh, adds like, no, not 90, 60 blasts. So if you add those together, you get 90 and then there's 10 somewhere else. Some people want to read in 101 because Sisera's mother. Yeah. Okay. We, we just won't go there. Um, yeah. So it's a whole nother seaport. Okay. So we have a hundred blasts total in a traditional service. We don't do that at KI. We stick with kind of the Takia Trua Takia, Takia Shavarim Trua, Takia Shavarim Trua Takia. All right. So I want to show you something that is super cool um, that we got in Israel. I'll pass it around and then uh, Rebecca maybe can sh- hold it up to the camera to show you at home. These are two pieces done by the same artist, uh, Kabbalist uh, in Sfat in Northern Israel. This is a representation of if you make each shofar kind of blast a certain color and a certain shape, this is the hundred blasts of the, of the shofar, visually. A visual interpretation. So the longer blast, the shorter blast, the combination blast. So he put these together um, in a visual representation of the hundred blasts. Um, so like, I love this one because it just like jumps at me in terms of the color and the kind of vibrancy and the visual representation of sound. Um, this one is he put, he, he worked with a computer programmer and put the hundred blasts. They actually blew the hundred blasts into a computer and had the computer translate the sound waves in, into visual I don't know how you, I don't know what I'm saying. You know, you take sound waves and then the computer can represent the sound as an actual wave. And this is uh, what happens when you blow a hundred blasts into the computer uh, and have it come out uh, as a visual. So I'll pass that around for each of you. So that's super cool. Oh, right. EKG. Yeah. It's like an EKG. Thank you, Dana. Like for you medical people in the room, right. So I don't know how that works, but somehow sound waves get translated into a line on a, on a piece of paper. So, um, thank you. Right. EKG is a perfect example. So this is the EKG of a shofar blowing a hundred blasts, which I think is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Yes, that's right. When we went on our trip, uh, we saw the artist, we went to his studio and this, this was there. Exactly right. Um, I love to think of it on the Voyager spacecraft. I would love to think of that. Right? Okay. So that's a little bit about why so many blasts and, uh, why we, uh, have different kinds. Um, what else? So questions I've been asked are why so much king language all over the liturgy? Like we're reconstructionists. Come on. Like what, you know, we're liberal Jews. Like what's up with that? So, um, we talked about the seventh month, right? It's not the seventh month for us. What month is it for us? The first month. So where did we get that idea? 
uh, we got that idea in exile when we were living in Manhattan in a place called Babylonia, uh, where we thought they were very cool with everything they did. And so we were influenced by that. And uh, there had always been two traditions in the Bible, one with the new year beginning in the spring in Nisan with Passover and one beginning in the fall. And so once the Babylonian exile happened and the Babylonians recognized their year as beginning in the fall, then it was like a no-brainer. The Jews of Manhattan said, that's what we're doing. We're going to the Plaza Hotel, not our schlumpy Jerusalem Hotel. And so uh, the new year became set as the fall, which means Rosh Hashanah became the head of the year, became the new year. Um, what happened with the Babylonians? What did the Babylonians do to celebrate their new year? So you've heard of a Hanukkah bush, because those pagans turned Christians do something with a tree around the birth of some guy, whatever. So, but... We're going to do the same thing, but it's a Hanukkah bush, right? So we kind of scoff at that. And yet we have all kinds of king language all over our liturgy for Rosh Hashanah because the Babylonians coronated the king again at the new year. Every new year, the king was coronated. The people swore loyalty to the king again. And so that was how they celebrated their new year with huge festival, huge, you know, bonfire, huge everything. And you swore loyalty to the king and um, and the king was coronated again with the, of course, consent of the gods. And there was a lot of, you know, uh, godding going on with wine and dancing and other things. And so um, so the Jews went went, oh, okay, well, that's how you celebrate the new year. But we are not, God forbid, going to coronate or recognize a human ruler. God forbid. The new year, who do we coronate? What is our statement? What is our reconstruction of that Babylonian pagan festival? We crown God again as our sovereign. And once again, bend the knee, and swear loyalty and fealty to what is ultimate, capital U. Harvey. Does the Babylonian calendar actually start in the Babylonian New Year, or is it irrespective of their calendar? It, it is their New Year in the so fall. It, it's, their, it's their calendar New Year. Yes. Also. Well, it was. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know. No, but no. Like, it was. At the time of the Babylonian exile, it was. And so um, what what is still powerful for me about that, because lots of people say, how can you as a lesbian, feminist, liberal rabbi get down with crowning God as king? And that's our big holiday. And I'm like, okay, first of all, people, it's metaphor. (laughs) Have y'all read poetry? Have you read good fiction? It still teaches us, right, and talks to us and speaks to us deeply about what we do believe to have metaphor work in our lives. And so do I love that it's the metaphor of king? No, but I didn't pick it. And and I teach this class in honor of and in memory of the queen who died this morning. Um, you don't have to love, as I said to Judy this morning, you have to love the monarchy. I'm not a monarchist. You don't have to love the monarchy to recognize the incredible sacrifice and service of Queen Elizabeth II, Zichrona Livracha. Her memory is for a blessing. And I would say Zichrona Tzidika 
litova. Like she, that she was a tzaddik. She was a righteous human being that gave her entire life to service. You, you have to respect that. Whether you respect imperialism, that's not the conversation. The conversation, so in that same way, I don't have to love the monarchy to, to love the queen and what she stands for and her service. And that's kind of how I feel about the, the Melech language. It's all over the liturgy of Rosh Hashanah. I don't have to love the monarchy or that image of God to understand that there, there are things we need to swear fealty to that are bigger than us, to the ultimate, to reality, capital R, to holiness, capital H, to godliness, capital G. Are we ready to make that sovereign in our lives or not? Because that's the real question. People love to throw out, oh, God is king language, hierarchy doesn't work for me. Okay, that's fine. But guess what else doesn't work for us as American liberal people? Swearing fealty to something bigger than ourselves. Crowning something else as sovereign other than our desires and our compulsions and our hunger and our habits and our success and our power and our influence and fill in the blank, right? And so for me, that's how I kind of get my head around all that king language is it's not about the king, right? It's about me. It's about what am I willing to recognize as something I'm ready to really honor as worthy of my alignment of all my energies, talents, resources, whatever. Was that a hallelujah? Was that an amen? Yeah, in the South, that would have been an amen, right? It was a right. Okay. All right. So um, so that's a little bit about king language. Um, what else? Um, so a lot of people ask, so this whole teshuva business, what's that? What's teshuva actually? Like? What is that actually about? What does that actually mean? And this whole sin business, we as Jews don't deal in sin a lot. What is this whole you know, mea culpa, mea culpa. Like, what is that about? Like, wh- Rabbi, like, why is that supposed to be meaningful all of a sudden to me? We don't talk about sin um, as liberal Jews. And so, like, I, I totally get that. Um, I actually wish we had a little more conversation about sin um, because I think we've lost our connection to understanding some things as truly damaging. Like, I think when we don't talk about sin in, in our context of liberal Judaism, I think we've lost the ability to kind of hold ourselves accountable in a little bit of a different way. Um, I get the baggage sin has. I totally understand that. And I respect that people like have lots of PTSD responses to that word and that term. But in Hebrew, um, the word is actually the word most commonly used for sin is chet. So who's going to tell me what chet actually means? The technical term chet, what does it actually mean? So the most common word for sin in Hebrew is chet. Right? What does that mean? Anybody? It's a term from archery. (laughs) I wish it meant bullseye. (laughs) Mitzvah means bullseye. (laughs) Right? Chet is a term from archery. Missing the mark. That's what it means. So if we understand the Hebrew terminology for sin as being a term from archery where you're aiming, you fire, and you miss, that is a lot easier to take, isn't it? 
that that's our definition of sin. We're trying, <laughs> but uh, but often we miss the mark. We're trying, but I'm tired and I'm hangry, and it's been a long week, and I don't feel good, and I'm not who I want to be. Like, but it doesn't mean intentionally trying to hurt somebody. That is not our understanding of sin. Nor is it I ate some chocolate because I really wanted it. Think of gluttony. That is not a Jewish understanding of missing the mark, right? So for me, that's one thing that's really important is that that we tried and we missed the mark because we're human. Was that a hand or just a fixing of the dress? Um, All right, so... Is there, I mean, I did have a thought. I wonder, some people do things intentionally, though. What some that people call? do sin so, intentionally. Well, is it called sin or missing the mark? I mean, so there's I'm, lots don't of words for sin in Hebrew. Okay. Um, and some of them technically have terms like murder, adultery. You know, there are some things that one does that have very technical terms. Other ones are avera, like there are lots of avon, there's pesha. There's a lot of terminology for how we go wrong. What's interesting to me is that the rabbis say an intentional sin, Yom Kippur doesn't atone for. Mm-mm. Sacrifice wouldn't atone for it in the temple period. And the rabbis say it doesn't atone for intentional sin. Like that is something one carries like for a long time if one does it intentionally. Um, and so a lot of their understanding of sin is that in general, we're not trying to hurt someone. We are angry, so we lose control. So I'm not saying we don't lash out and we don't intentionally say something. It's that we're angry. And we don't, like that if we really had our druthers and were lined up the right way, we wouldn't do it. But I'm tired. I'm stressed. The baby's crying and the you know, car's honking. And, the, you know, and, and so then we lash out and we say things we shouldn't. Or I'm jealous, or I'm hurt, right, or whatever. But that intentional is pretty by the rabbis is 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 very narrowly understood. It has to be pretty mean, right, for them to understand it as intentional. Like it has to be pretty in your face. Um, in general, they understand it is we're trying to do what we we're doing the best we can, and because of lots of circumstances, we screw up and wind up with pesha avon. Let's give it to Barbara, please. Isn't it about what you said? It's not so much what you did, but being accountable for, isn't that the whole point of the sin concept or a big part of it? Say more. Being, it's not so much what you did, intention notwithstanding, but that you have to be accountable for it, that on the holidays, okay, I did it. I own up to it. I'm, I'm sorry. Yes. So Barbara points out a very important part of chet and then of what we just said, like what's tshuva? What is that actually? We hear this word, do tshuva, do tshuva, do tshuva. What does that actually mean? It's like, what is that? The whole high holidays, we talk about doing tshuva. Tshuva. Okay, so how would you translate tshuva? Reparations. I like that. Reparation. How do we traditionally translate it? Tshuva? Repentance, right? So what what does that mean? To your point, Barbara, we don't ever go into anything saying God will forgive us. That's the last step of the procedure of teshuva. Teshuva comes from this. 
which I spelled wrong even in the transliteration. Because I can't spell... Shut up, Patty. Okay, so... No, please, please. It comes from this. Shuv. It comes from shuv. That's the root of teshuvah. This gives it, this makes it a noun. So, shuv. What does shuv mean? Shuv means, sorry at home. Shuv means to turn, to return. So, turn, shuv, just like in English, to return has turning in it. Shuv, change, return. So what does that already suggest? Repentance, teshuva, already with shuv as its root means we as a tradition understand that our, our, our core is what? Good. Our core is good. Then we screw up. We get all the things we said, frustrated, tired, angry, jealous, hurt. We, and then we screw up. But what we're asked to do is shuv, return, return, return to who you are, to what you are, right? To shuva is actually about return. So how do we do that? Our tradition demands that one must take accountability. That is the first step. One cannot go to the divine spirit, the universe, ultimate consciousness. One can't go anywhere until one has gone to the person one wronged and asked for forgiveness. How many times are you required to ask if they say no? Three. <laughs> Dana, ooh, right? Yeah, ooh. It's already hard to ask once, right? It's like asking once forgiveness for something you did that you're already embarrassed about and you already have to call the person or text them or email them. Right? I hate those emails every year. I hate those emails. And if someone says, forget about it, no way. The rabbis say we have to ask three times, and then the sin is on them for not forgiving. But we have to be able to suck it up three times because we've hurt them. And sometimes they're saying no because they're hurt. Right? And But it's about making reparations, as someone said. Yes. So confession, it's all based on us. It's all based on us, of course. So we confess. Notice, um, how do we confess? What is the goof? What is the, uh, in English, how do you call it? The body, like what, what, in English, what do you call singular, plural? What do you call that in English? In Hebrew, it's goof. It's the body that you're talking about. Okay, whatever. Um, Conjugation. Yeah, for a verb, it's conjugation. But like it, in Hebrew, we pray, we confess in the plural. <laughs> we confess in the plural. Asham nu, Bagad nu, Gazal nu, Dibar nu, Dofi. We sinned. We transgressed. We, why? If I'm taking a responsibility and accountability, why do we do it in the plural? So, yes. So my question is then, what's the relationship between from your personal confession, change, repair, and the community that is confess in doing this? What's our relationship to to everybody else that we're sitting with in synagogue, 
and we're all standing together and saying the same thing together. So there's the personal, and then there's also the community, the people. I think what you just made was a beautiful statement about what we do at the High Holidays. So turn that from a question into a statement. At the High Holidays, holidays, we... Yes, we we do all that as a community. Yes, we do it as a community. So we need to, before we come to synagogue, have made the phone calls and the emails and the asking of forgiveness and the repairing of relationship, and sometimes it's reparation. I did actually break that vase, so I'd like... I'd like to pay you for it. Right, right. So sometimes it's really, you have to be able to make reparations when you can. Sometimes for most of us, it's not money or material things. It's about, I'm truly sorry and I don't want to do it again. And I want you to, uh, I want to heal the relationship. Um, You're supposed to do all that before you come to shul. In shul, we stand up and verbally out loud confess as a community saying, We have all done all these things. Now, what if I don't think I stole? I didn't steal anything this year. Don't say anything, Judy. I didn't steal anything this year. I didn't steal any pens. I didn't maybe escape with a little extra couple of snacks from that thing that had really fancy. Like I didn't take anything this year that didn't belong to me. I was really good about it. Um, So really? The rabbis would say, so why do I need to say that one out loud in community when I didn't do that as an individual? And they say, well, really, have you ever stolen anyone's time? Have you ever kept someone on the phone long past when you knew they were ready to be done, but you really needed some attention and some time and some focus? Have you ever stood in line in the grocery store and talked to the clerk? Because it's like, I really don't want to go back to work. That has never happened to me. But like... You're stealing their time. Have you ever said something bad about somebody else? Well, then you've stolen their reputation. So the rabbis expand every category that we say together communally in our confession to include lots of things every single one of us have done. And then if people in the Talmud still wanted to argue, but what if somebody hadn't even done any of that? They're a true tzaddik. They hadn't done any of that. The rabbis say, do you live in a community where that happens? Well, you contribute to the culture of that congregation, of that community, of that town. And so have you really done everything you could to impact the community that has done these things? Mike? Thank you, Rebecca. But it seems what you are saying is that Jews are born in a state of grace and Christians are born in a state of sin. So that's really what it comes down to. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, to, so if we're going to be blunt about it, Christians, uh, certain branches of Christianity believe that we are born sinful because of what happened in the Garden of Eden, um, and so we are all born with. Well, there's two versions of original sin. One is the original sin of kind of being human, like that happens through sin, um, and a, and another is that. Uh, that that it goes back to the fall. So Jews buy neither one of those, right? Procreation is a mitzvah. The more you procreate, the more mitzvah. So it's not that. It's not how we get here. It's not orig- It's not our origins in terms of biologically, physiologically, a sex act. That's not a bad thing. That's a mitzvah in the right relationships, obviously. Um, and um, and there is no 
repercussion from Eden that stains our soul from the beginning. I won't say we're born in a state of grace. Um, I don't think that's true. The rabbis are very clear that we are born with both a Yetzer HaTov and a Yetzer Hara. We are born with both an inclination to do good and an inclination to do bad. And the work of Torah is to move us from one to the other, right? From our inclinations to grab, to take, to hit, to steal, to like all those things that we are, we have an inclination towards and to move all those appetites towards the side of Yetzir HaTov, the, the good side, right? The side of mitzvah, the side of self-restraint, the side of knowing what's best for ourselves, for our families, for our community and refraining from action that, and, and that, that Yitz Greenberg has a beauty, his whole life has been a teaching about the covenant. And he says the whole point of the covenant, the whole point of Torah is to move us from the world as it is to the world as it should be. That the world as it should be, you know, is very different from the world that is, but Jews don't deny the world that is. We have Torah that helps move and the tradition, you know, of the oral tradition moves us from as it is to as it should be. And I really love that about Judaism, that Judaism accepts we are sinful. We are greedy. We want to hit and punch each other. I mean, some people do. Uh, that's never happened to me, but, um, we, we, that's just part of who we are. And so we, we are given this tradition and I believe every people has their tradition to help do exactly that, to move it from how it is more to how it should be. Okay. Um, what, what time are we at, Rebecca? Oh my goodness. Okay. I'm already out of time. Wow. Okay. So, um, and we haven't even gotten to Yom Kippur. Okay. Yom Kippur. Why do we wear white? People go, why do we wear white? Why is everybody wearing white? Purity, the angels. Why else? We wear white when we die. We wear a white burial shroud when we die. Because it's hot outside? Is that what you said? Okay. Because it's hot outside. Tachlis. The practical stuff. Tachlis. It's hot. We're wearing white. It's reflective. Okay. Thank you, Matt, in his white T-shirt. I love that. So why do we wear white? Angels, purity. It's reflective and it's really hot out there. And in the Middle East, it was really hot in September. Absolutely. Um, the other thing is we wear white when we die. We are buried in a burial shroud, a kittle, um, that many, many people wear on Yom Kippur. Um, they actually, I too did before I came here, I wore my burial shroud um, in Duluth. Uh, and in Atlanta, always on high holidays, on Yom Kippur, I wore my burial shroud. Um, and so we're trying to find it right now. Because usually I wear the robe that I have, um, and so I'm trying to find my shroud. I can't find it. Um, but I love, 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 I know, like the face of yours. I love wearing my burial shroud on Yom Kippur. Because it is the visceral reminder of what Yom Kippur is trying to come to say, which is you are going to die and you don't know when you are given another year. Yes. Men wear it on Pesach. They wear it on their wedding night under the chuppah. You stop. You stop, Richard. Um, <laughs> Richard's all about the correlation between marriage and death. So, so right. So, uh, 
Yes. So on the night of our greatest joy, we remember it's not forever. We're lucky to have found this person. We're lucky to have this. And we do not take it for granted because it is not forever. And we don't know when it's going to happen. And it could happen really soon, way before we anticipate. Um, and so on the wedding night, it's worn. On Pesach, it's worn. Uh, and on, on Yom Kippur, go to Pico Robertson. Before you get married. Before you get married. And then you wear it on Pesach for Seder. Uh, and then you wear it uh, on Yom Kippur. So men, of course. Men. Right. Right. Till you're married. Um, probably because then you, then you have what's at stake. You know what I mean? Like until you marry, you die. Like it's you. It's, you know, okay. But but it's like once you marry, you you have something different at stake should something happen to you. you know, as a man in the ancient world. So, <laughs> Marty, the chemist, says the first time he saw this, he's like, Wait, why is everybody in a lab coat? Right? Okay. So, because there's a lot of Jewish doctors, right, in, in the current. So, um, so wearing the burial shroud is a very potent reminder. And this is why we don't eat or drink on Yom Kippur, because we refrain from anything that connects us to life. It's one day that we really try to live what it would be like to be dead. So that we really viscerally remember it's going to happen. And it could happen this year. And if it doesn't happen this year, it could happen very soon after. It, it, the point is, and I'm reading a book right now called 4,000 Weeks, um, a fabulous book. If you get a chance to read it, it's, it's not big. It's written beautifully, so it's easy to move through, which I really appreciate. Like I read a lot of scholarly stuff that's like, oh my God, well, how much longer is this article? It's a beautiful book called 4,000 Weeks. And it's somebody who used to be in the executive planning world, the, the corporate planning world of like time management and productive, how to be more productive. And he left that world uh, and uh, wrote this book. Most of us get 4,000 weeks to live. Like essentially, if we live into our 80s, we get about 4,000 weeks. And so it's all about like kind of taking stock about well, why are we trying to be so productive? Why are we we're using time, time as a resource? It's like, that's kind of a crazy way to think about time, actually. And it's this beautiful book. And for me, it's so Jewish. It's about Yom Kippur. Once a year, we say we get 4,000 weeks. We might not get 4,000 weeks. We might get 2,000 weeks. I don't know how many weeks I'm going to get. There's only 53 in this year. I may not get to all of them. And so once a year, we're asked to really pay attention to how am I living the time I have right now, because I may not have as much as I think. If it's forever, you you know, if it's really far off, eh, who really cares what I do? But Yom Kippur is to say, no, like it's really going to be you, actually you. So you actually put on your actual shroud that you're actually going to wear in your actual coffin. That's intense. And it's a way to say, take it seriously that you have the gift of starting another year do not take it for granted but you have to take enough water to take your medicine and if you have to eat you the rabbi say you have to take enough food to take your medicine and not get sick you have to and if you can't fast you shouldn't fast so i want to be very clear about that um so the other question people ask me is why does rabbi amy get so upset when people say have an easy fast it should hurt fasting is supposed to make us think about all the people in the world who don't have enough to eat every single day 
I went to high school at the, when I was at the high school for the performing arts and our director would tell us all the time the story of the kid who showed up and he said, why are you like not paying attention? And I didn't eat breakfast this morning. I'm falling asleep. And he said to him, why didn't you eat breakfast? And he said, it wasn't my turn. People live like this in our communities, in our cities. And so we are supposed to one day a year think about, feel viscerally what that feels like, to not have enough to eat. Right? And All right. I want to close with this. Sneakers. Why do we wear tennis shoes on Yom Kippur? So hilarious. Everyone here said no leather. Have you ever seen people wearing leather tennis shoes to shul? Yeah. Right. So just being very clear, we wear tennis shoes because we can't wear leather because we don't want to stand before the Holy One, the mystery at the heart of reality, on Yom Kippur, the day we're thinking about our own death, wearing dead animal. Not good. Not a good look. Right? So we don't wear leather. Also, leather was a luxury. In the ancient world, if you had leather shoes, that was a huge luxury. So on Yom Kippur, we don't wear, you stand before the Holy One, contemplating your own mortality, wearing the most luxurious shoes you have, which were very expensive in the ancient world. All right, so no leather. So that is why people often only had the alternative of canvas shoes, right? Like, I've looked for nice-looking shoes that are not leather, but I'm like, but they look too much like leather. So people are not going to know they're not leather. Espadrilles are perfect. Oh, maybe I'll wear my new espadrille sandals this year. Oh, that's a good idea. Um, flip-flops, God forbid. We have this image of people going to synagogue at the high holy days, getting all dressed up. What did they, yeah, what did they wear on Yom Kippur, I wonder? So it's very interesting. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. I grew up in the South. So you can imagine, you can imagine like dressing in the South is a very serious business. Um, and on high holidays, there were everyone with their new hats that matched their new shoes. Their shoes matched their bag, right? Their gloves until a certain point matched all of that. Um, it was a very serious breach of etiquette to show up on the highest holy days in anything other than your finest. That included leather shoes, right? You wore your finest. Um, Only in the Orthodox communities would you find people wearing canvas tennis shoes. It was not normative at all. In the big synagogues was, or Sword Sinai Temple here, I'm told, um, you wore your finest of your finest, right? Which which is also a value, right? So that's an American value and and not just American, but like, but we as Americans, that that was a huge value that I grew up with. Wear white after Labor Day. That's a sin you're going to have to say chuva for in shul, right? And so you, you just did not do it. You could do winter white. You could do cream or off white, but not white, or you have to do chuva. So we, so we took it very seriously. And so culturally it's kind of a clash between American values and Jewish values. That's one of the places we see that for me was on Yom Kippur because I would dive in with my yeshiva, you know, folks, and they were all in a burial shroud and canvas keds. And then I'd go, you know, with my friends to shul at the hoo-ha, hoo-ha shul. Um, and like everyone had a new hat and every, like, and they were, 
showing them off and it was, it was a huge thing. So I think that's a one, one of the places we see our American and Jewish values um, kind of coming into, I wouldn't say conflict because some people are happy with how they've solved it. Like the hats and the outfits are fine and great actually for some people. So I'm not saying it's still a clash for everybody, but it's, it's where I see them in tension. Um, but so, so the leather tennis shoes, I do not understand. I think there are people who just see people wearing tennis shoes and think, well, we're standing so much, we're allowed to wear tennis shoes and put aside the dress shoe thing for this holiday. And so they just wear their fancy leather tennis shoes. So, um, so it's a phenomenon that like, I'm always just like, <laughs> like but okay, is what it is. Thank you all for being here. Um, thank you as always for being part of this amazing, wonderful, uh, reconstructing this whole business community and, uh, see you next time.